Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is Adorium Conversations. This is our, our first ever episode. Uh, my name is David Tabazel. I know it's a strange name, but never mind. Um, I'm the chairman of Adorium. Adorium is the world's largest entrepreneurs friendship network. We're a, a business network that believes that human relations are the most important thing in a disintermediated world. And we have about 40 to 45,000 people around the world, entrepreneurs, people that want to learn, people with, with outgoing personalities. And we organize normally lots of events for all kinds of people across all kinds of businesses. But guess what? We're all stuck at home with coronavirus. So what better time to get some cheerful, meaningful, inspiring, lengthy conversations that lift the lid on the human side of the personalities and the ideas that we <laughs> we really have to face in an ever-changing world. So I'm talking to you uh, from my home in North London. If a flower pot falls on my head, never mind. And I am very fortunate to have one of the world's leading public health experts, entrepreneurs, oncological surgeon, mountaineer expedition, medical expert, and somebody running uh, one of the largest international healthcare businesses in the world, Dr. Snay Kemka, who's talking to us from where? I'm in South London, David. So Snay's talking to us, and by the wonders of Zoom, uh, we've got lots of questions, we've got lots of issues. We're not just going to talk about uh, the coronavirus, we're going to talk about Snay's life, we're going to talk about the world, both in terms of business and healthcare and life that emerges after this. But first of all, Snay, tell us a little bit about how you started in, as a doctor. Well, thanks very much, David. And before I do, I just want to tell you that um, um, I've been affiliated with the Dorian for a little while now. And uh, the reason I'm participating in this as, a, as an introductory, as a first episode, is really because I believe in the in the core values of Adorium, which are about informed and intellectual debate, about philanthropy, about friendship, about coming together. And in this time of COVID, um, it's a privilege to be a doctor, to be able to serve and to try and help people and uh, provide a bit of guidance. But I, um, I'm a typical second generation Indian. My father is a surgeon and he said to me when I was 17, so son, what are you going to study at university? I told him French and English. And he said, well, I'm not going to fund you through that, am I? Um, how about medicine? Um, so I said, yes, of course daddy and uh, therefore I became a doctor um, and I really enjoyed it I went to university in Edinburgh medical school uh, and I qualified at the age of 22 as a doctor I then qualified as a surgeon at the age of 25 and I specialized in in cancer surgery I first specialized in bowel cancer surgery and then I moved one fateful day to the other end of the body and specialized in eye cancer surgery uh, uh, of all things I came down to London and I did my um, postgraduate training um, uh, throughout the hospitals in central London. Um, and about five years ago, I became an honorary fellow of the Royal Faculty of Public Health um, in recognition of some of the public health work that I was doing, um, uh, which we'll talk a little bit more about. But uh, I now work a little bit as a doctor a little bit as a businessman running a healthcare system internationally and a little bit as an expedition medic, as you said, supporting people who are climbing up mountains and trekking across continents, um, uh, lending my medical expertise to help them uh, raise vital funds. Well, that's quite an introduction, but you try shutting Snay up and that's wonderful. That's why it's so marvellous to have you here. Um, some of you will be listening to, to Snay as, as the resident medic on LBC 97.3, which you can get online as, uh, if you don't live in the UK. Um, Snay, you've had the coronavirus is that right it's a good starting point yes i am now on day 15 and i am beginning to turn a real corner and feel a bit a lot more positive 
Mm. What were the first symptoms? So I actually want to take you through this in a bit of detail because what was quite interesting, being a doctor, I knew exactly what was going on. Um, so I know that uh, I probably got a viral load um, from a contact who was also diagnosed with coronavirus on a Monday about three weeks ago. On a Thursday evening, I started getting a croaky throat. So about four days later, and on Friday morning, I had the very early signs of coronavirus, which was a soft cough and a general feeling of malaise, of not being very well. Um, by Friday evening, uh, without any shadow of doubt, I had progressed rather rapidly, and my temperature had risen, um, and I had three days of very severe temperature up in the 40s, with an associated cough, which was getting worse and worse, muscle ache, joint pains, um, and the full sort of range of symptoms, and shortness of breath. And I was pretty sure that I had coronavirus at that point. Did you get tested then? No. So I was in the phase, or I am in the phase, um, where the UK government stopped testing. Now, actually, because of my contacts, I could have got tested if I wanted to, but there's no reason for me to jump the gun. I'm not Boris Johnson or Prince Charles. Um, and so uh, I didn't get tested, um, but I had the full range of symptoms. And so things progressed. I had to isolate from my children uh, by hiding in the loft room. Uh, I've got two young kids at home, and obviously I didn't want them to get it, or my wife. Um, and so I stayed away from them for four days. Uh, and then I started re-emerging. At that point, I started feeling significantly better. But what happens with a virus is it, it sort of invades your, your nasal passages in your throat, and there it replicates. And when it's replicating, that's when you become your most infectious. That's when you start coughing. And I could actually feel the virus moving down my respiratory tract into my upper trachea, which was then beginning to kill cells. And as the cells get killed, that's when you produce sputum. And I started producing the sputum, which are essentially dead lung cells, um, which were killed by the virus. And that's when I was at my most infective. That all then started to settle. And I was left with malaise, bone ache, um, a, a dry cough. And rather bizarrely, two other symptoms which other people have described. One is a complete loss of smell and taste, uh, which lasted for about three or four days. And two was restless legs. At nighttime, it felt like there were electrical pulses racing through my legs, and I couldn't sleep because I wanted to kick my legs. So those things all started to settle. And now two weeks on, um, that had transformed into a sinusitis, which is now being settled. But I'm back to 90% of myself now. Were you, were you scared? Um, no, I wasn't. If I wasn't medically trained, I would have been. On day three, because I started getting a tight chest and started getting gurgling and a, a, a wheeze or a stridor, um, if I wasn't medically trained, I would have thought to myself, I wonder what on earth is going on. Do I need to go to hospital? Am I going to die? Partly because the media has whipped me up into a frenzy. Um, because I understood that my respiratory rate was okay, my pulse rate was okay, that paracetamol was bringing my temperature down, I know I knew I could look after myself and I didn't need to go to hospital. But if I hadn't been medically trained, I'd have been terrified. Right. So you're 44 years old. I am. You don't, hopefully, well, you don't want to... Uh, um go into personal details too much, but no really serious pre-existing conditions? Nothing. That's great. Okay. And what was your fever? So it was above 40 on two nights and then averaged around 39 degrees uh, for the other two or three nights that I had it. If we've got any uh, Americans listening, sorry, say, what was 40 in Fahrenheit? I don't know, David. Actually, you know what? I, uh, maybe <laughs> you can tell me that one. I don't I know. I can't really because I'm, I'm, I'm sitting, if, if, I, if I move out of my my home studio, I'll knock everything over and we'll never be able to speak again. So, but it's, it's over a hundred and, uh, you know, in, in old, in old numbers. And 
that's pretty serious. Now, can I ask a practical question? All the supermarkets, all the chemists have sold out of, all the pharmacies have sold out of uh, thermometers. How do people know they've got a fever without a thermometer? Is it possible to know? Yeah, you can't define it definitively. Um, uh, so a lot of people will feel warm and worry they've got a fever. Uh, I actually had proper rigors. Rigors is the medical term for um, uh, for shivering um, and not shivering. You know, when, you, when you've got a bad temperature and your whole body is um, involuntarily contracting and you're chattering your teeth. What do you call it? Rigors. Okay, because that sounds like a, a, a Jewish starter I used to have when I was growing up. So, <laughs> now, <laughs> my, my memory is going with all. But, but okay, so you had all that. So you had all the signs of it, and and uh, okay, and and what did you use to 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 bring that down? So there's a raging debate going on about paracetamol versus ibuprofen. And uh, let me just comment on this a little bit, because I started off by using ibuprofen and I was using cough syrup. And those two things were not a good idea. Really? Um, Yeah. And I'll tell you exactly why. Let's talk about the cough syrup first. So the cough syrup was very symptomatically relieving. Um, but it's essentially a thick liquid that goes and pastes the top of the epiglottis and will keep the virus down. Rather than being able to expectorate and get rid of the sputum in the dead cells, um, what it does is it allows the mucus to stay in the lining of the lung passages, and that is what causes people's pneumonia. Pneumonia and secondary complications that are coming from COVID is because they're particularly thick mucus secretions, meaning the virus gets pushed further down into the lungs, into the alveoli. And so taking cough syrup was not a good idea. I only did it twice and then I stopped realizing what was happening. And on the ibuprofen, I know that there's been varying um, amounts of uh, debate on it. Ibuprofen is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory um, uh, medicine. Now, there's a whole range of anti-inflammatory medicines. And the problem with it is it suppresses the immune system. So when your immune system is trying to fight the virus, Uh, what you want to do is let it fight the virus. If you take ibuprofen, it suppresses the immune system, meaning the virus takes a stronger hold in your body and can cause more side effects and and, and more disease, essentially. And that's why the government is now advising not to take ibuprofen. But ibuprofen, in a normal uh, case, actually isn't just a, a, um, an anti-inflammatory, it also can reduce fever, can it, or not? Indeed, it's an antipyrexic as well, like right. paracetamol, so it brings temperature down as well. So normally it's quite good when people do have a temperature, but specifically with COVID, it runs the risk of you getting a, a, a secondary um, complication like pneumonia. Now, if somebody, we've got no painkillers left in the shops, um, or very few, although they will be arriving, <clears throat> pardon me, um, if somebody therefore has a high fever, they absolutely, and pain and headache and joint pain, they absolutely mustn't take it, or it's something to do if, it, if the fever speaks? No, it's not an absolute um, contraindication. It's a general advice point. So if you can't get hold of anything else and you need to bring your fever down, then you can take ibuprofen, but try and limit it to once a day. So try and limit it. You can normally take 400 milligrams of ibuprofen three times a day, spaced every eight hours. In this circumstance, I try and limit it to once a day if you can, and not at all if you can. But if you've got nothing else and you've only got ibuprofen to save you, take away the pain, then don't give yourself a nightmare. Take a bit of ibuprofen. It won't be that bad. Okay. So you've had it for how long? About two weeks? Yeah, 15 days now. Yeah. Right. And do you think you were carrying it around for a while before the symptoms? I don't know the answer to that. Well, well, I do know that I was incubating it. There's, there's a, there's a, there's a known incubation period which is somewhere between seven to fourteen days. Um, the question is, was I infective? 
while I was incubating and asymptomatic? And frankly, David, nobody knows the answer to that. It's one of the big mysteries of COVID right now is can you spread the virus while you're not displaying symptoms? Um, I don't think so. Personally, my feeling is that it's only when the virus is replicating and you're coughing and spluttering that you're actually expelling the virus into, into droplets. Um, but there is a possibility that, that you may um, spread it at a lower viral load um, before you just start displaying symptoms. Hmm. And what else did you do to, to mitigate your, your uh, sleep? Yeah, I mean, the sleep really got interrupted. It was very difficult to sleep because I had such a raging temperature. So your body's on fire. And essentially, when your body's on fire, your metabolic rate is high. Um, and when your metabolic rate is high, you want to eat lots. I got really, really hungry, bizarrely. Um, and um, you, your body wants to move. It wants to be actioning, hence their restless legs. So it's actually very hard to sleep. I'm sure other people who've got COVID will have experienced the same thing as well. Of course, now all I want to do is sleep. And you've got a post-viral lethargy. And I'm getting into that place now. Any signs of depression, anything like that? Nothing more than the usual. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> uh, I think uh, the economic doom and gloom, which, uh, which we're all suffering, uh, yeah. embracing for impact on, and uh, um, the, the, the isolation does take its toll. Um, but at the time, uh, no, not really. It didn't cause me to feel uh, any mental health effects um, as a result of the virus itself. Okay, so, so just a few more tips, because... Um, this could be with us for a while and it's there's almost no other topic if you think you've got it what would you do straight away you, you... so the first thing is if you've got it i'd isolate and um i say this because of something that's quite interesting is is to do with viral load and I've, i i mentioned this before but i think one of the things we don't know and are beginning to understand is that the reasons doctors in hospitals and um, uh, other people are getting a really bad case of it is viral load. If you expose yourself in the first few acutely infective days, you are much more likely to pass on a high viral load to another individual. Mm. So if there's three people sitting in a room coughing and sputtering with coronavirus, um, you are going to get high viral loads from those people. If you've touched a door handle, and you catch it like that, you're going to get a much lower viral load. And there is definitely clinical evidence now emerging saying that people who get a high viral load are much more likely to get severe disease and secondary complications and, you know, die. Um, and so limiting the viral load exposure, I think, is really important, David. Mm, OK, right. And in your so so you are yourself isolated and have you passed this on to your family? Do you think? Yes, I did pass it on to my family. So despite my best efforts, um, my wife did get it. She either because of being of the female of the species or um, because she got a lower viral load. And I don't know empirically what it, what it is. She had m uh, fewer symptoms than me. She was better within two or three days, didn't have such a high temperature. And there's something quite incredible going on with the resilience of children. Uh, they were irritable for 24 hours with a bit of a temperature. They're two and three years old. And then they were absolutely fine after that. Why but do, I'm pretty why sure. do you think that is? Sorry, sorry, sir. You know, I don't know. I don't understand the epidemiology or the, 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 the sort of pathophysiology behind children and why they're not getting it as badly. It's a bit of a medical miracle. And I've got to say, from a humanitarian point of view, it's something that I'm really, really glad about. The children seem to be relatively impervious to this condition. Mm, okay one well, let's just move so you self-isolate you're going to even you a you know renowned professional somebody who runs population health for for, for Aetna looking at running health services for all kinds of countries around the world even you couldn't self-isolate is there any point other than if you have an old and vulnerable, vulnerable person is there any point or might as well we just go all go and play video games together and get through it 
So that's quite a complex question, um, and it's got a few layers to it, David. So let me try and peel it apart. One is I definitely think that in your acutely infective phase, you want to pass off pass on as little of your virus as possible. So if you've got symptoms, I think the seven-day isolation should be adhered to as much as humanly possible. Now, in a household, that's nigh on impossible. When my three-year-old daughter got freaked out because there was somebody wandering around upstairs and she couldn't tell who it was, I had to reveal myself to her and say I was still in the house sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So it's impossible just pragmatically to completely isolate from your family for seven days. Do it as much as you possibly can. The second part of the question is, if you're not symptomatic, then um, th should you be isolating from other people? And for me, David, I, 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 you, you'll have a viewpoint, I'm sure. But for me, definitely. Social isolation and the um, ability to stop the transmission from person to person is a very important factor in our fight against this condition. Uh, and you know all of the reasons behind this, David. It's about flattening the curve. It's about making sure our health system doesn't get overwhelmed. Um, we will eventually get to herd immunity and it will spread across the population, but slowing it down is uber, uber important. Very good. Okay. Now, any other practical tips? Diet, anything you should avoid? Um, no, I mean, with anything, you want to make sure that you are keeping a healthy diet. So eating plenty of fresh fruit and vegetable, really good hydration, uh, citrus fruits, which have vitamin C in them, making sure you try and get some sun exposure. You don't need to be outside for it. You can get it indoors if you've got windows um, and getting sun exposure. Uh, uh, so you get vitamin D conversion. That's very important. Um, your, your, your vitamin levels are important. So if you can't not getting vitamins from your diet, taking uh, vitamin supplements is a good idea, especially things um, that you wouldn't think of normally like zinc and magnesium. Um, uh, keeping yourself fit and healthy. Um, if you are allowed to go outside for your exercise, getting exercise, those are things that you can just do to bolster the immune system. And the more you bolster the immune system, the more chance it has of fighting the virus if and when you get it. But keep a window open? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it depends where that window leads to. Um, if it's into the kitchen next door, then absolutely not. But if it leads to the outside, yeah, ventilation, very important. You don't want to be uh, in confined areas for too long, yeah. Right. Now, okay. So now to sort of slightly more conceptual stuff. The world is going to be changed here. And you and I have had a lot of conversations over the last couple of years about, about genetic medicine and about uh, how healthcare systems are failing us. The first question is, do you think that this is a natural virus? Do you, or do you think this is something that's come out of a, uh, a laboratory. Do you do you buy into any of these conspiracy theories or that are, that are heading around the internet? Categorically not, um, and that's more because of my uh, faith in humanity uh, rather than any other medical evidence that's behind it. Um, I think. Uh, viruses like this are going to continue to appear and they're going to continue to appear organically. Now, what we've seen in the last few years, whether that be with swine flu or avian flu um, or any of the other things, is, is uh, zoonose transfer. So it's, it's coming from animals. And there is not a single doubt in my mind that there are more and more viruses which are going to come out of the animal kingdom and into the human kingdom and cause these problems. Now, whether this virus has come from bats or from civets, we don't know. Um, but I firmly believe this is an organic disease and not something that's been manufactured in a laboratory, despite all the conspiracy theories that are floating around on this. Okay. Now, we're seeing a variety of different uh, ethnic groups, uh, as well as uh, 
demographic age separation. Uh, so, for example, we know um, that, that uh, Ashkenazi Jews seem to be, of which I'm one, seem, uh, seem to be dying 10 times more from this, uh, which is strange. Now, <laughs> to what extent do we understand the genetics of the, of the coronavirus? And I believe there are also two, two variants, is that right? So uh, on the two variants, there's a lever and a dextroform um, of the virus. They're both essentially the same virus. And once you form immunity to either the lever or dextroform, you're immune to both of them. So they're not mutations of each other. They're different presentations. Um, what you say about how it affects our genetic um, predisposition is very interesting. I don't think anyone's got the answer, but this is something that we're going to have to definitely explore as we do a, uh, you know, a, a post-apocalypse um, analysis of what happened here. Because there is not a single doubt in my mind that your genetic predisposition to um, uh, how you handle this virus is really going to define the clinical course that you suffer. So I talked about viral load, but more important than viral load is going to be what your genetic predisposition is, at, which defines your immunity and therefore your response and reaction to the virus. Um, and in Ashkenazi Jews, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm interested to find out more about that. I don't know what you know on this, David. All I, all I heard was that there were a vast amount of uh, Jewish funerals suddenly appearing out of nowhere in almost all countries in the world. Now, that may be that the, the, the population simply clusters and uh, live around areas um, where there are synagogues and that kind of thing. They, you know, so a local community could uh, uh, develop density. We don't know yet. It's early days. We don't really know anything about anything, do we, out there at the moment? Well, what we do know about Ashkenazi Jews in particular is that there are some um, uh, well-defined genetic conditions um, that do affect the population, uh, mucopolysaccharidosis and um, um, various uh, gastrointestinal issues that are part of the Ashkenazi Jew population because of genetic mutation. Um, so it's interesting to me if there's observational data that's showing that uh, there's a higher rate of death because of coronavirus, then I'm sure that's beginning to define some sort of genetic uh, or epigenetic pattern um, to do with the virus and how it affects people. Now we'll talk about genetics later on, but let's just let's just think about this. How long is this going to go on for? Um, so I think that's defined by two things. One is the potency of the, of the virus, and two is uh, human behavior. So when it comes to the potency of the virus, this virus is going to be in our community for a few more years. Um, and I think it's going to take about 18 to 24 months for us to get to a position of herd immunity. And what I mean by that is that 60% or 70% of the population will have it, and they're therefore unlikely to um, uh, be able to spread it at such a big rate. But I, you know, it's going to be around for at least a couple of years. What I think human society is going to do in reaction is um, we will start normalizing it after a while, and our desire to be economically productive and to be out and about and to be socializing is going to override uh, the measures that we put in place. And I think come mid-April, people will start venturing out again. I think come the summer, uh, people will start talking about other things and trying to resume normal activity. And I think by autumn, uh, we will, to all intents and purposes, be back in productive mode, interacting, and managing the virus as we go, rather than changing the world around us to deal with the virus. Okay, and you believe the tests that we're now beginning to see emerging around the world will show whether we have either the virus or, or, or the antibodies? I mean, do you believe it's gonna work? So there are two tests that are out there, two sets of tests. You can either test for the antigen, 
or you can test for the antibody. So the antigen is the thing that the virus presents um, in the body. And when you take a swab uh, right now and you send that back to a lab, the reagents there test for the antigen. And that tells you whether you've had whether you've got the infection or not. Mm-hmm. So that's the test that we've got out there at the moment. That's pretty accurate. We know it's got a good level of sensitivity and specificity, meaning it's not telling you porkies. Um, and it, uh, but the problem with it is availability. There isn't that much availability, and it's been reserved for uh, hospitals and healthcare workers. The big thing for our economic recovery and for us to um, get better as a society will be the antibody test. And that is to see whether you have developed antibodies against those antigens and therefore whether you are immune to the virus. Now that is weeks away. The government in this country has been talking about it being days away. Um, I sit on the board of a company called Viapath, which is the largest laboratory company here in the UK. And we were discussing it just on Wednesday. The problem with those antigen tests, antibody tests rather, is that they are not sensitive enough. They've only got about 70% accuracy. yeah, and so they test for two things called immunoglobulin G and immunoglobulin M. And um, what can happen is that your IgG or your IgM levels can go up if you've been exposed to another virus, like a typical influenza virus or H1N1 or, 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 or something else. And so if you've had that virus exposure in the past, you may test positive for the antibody and falsely think that you are immune from coronavirus and that's the problem that 30 percent of people who will show positive when they're not actually immune and so those tests need a lot more accuracy and a lot more testing before we get a proper antibody test that we can send out to the to the population so surely what's going to happen here well my first question to you is if you've had this are we certain there's immunity so pretty certain pretty certain predicated on historical um, medical trend. Mm. So if the virus doesn't mutate, uh, like like with any vaccination, what happens in a vaccination, David? You, you give um, a dead or attenuated version of the virus in a very small dose to a human being, their body reacts, it causes antibodies, which then have memory. Mm. And those antibodies then go and store themselves um, in part of your lymph tissues. And then if you get that virus again, your antibodies flare into action rather like a reactionary army and they'll come and kill it off before it causes any any, any nasty effects. Mm-hmm. So similarly, if you get this virus, you will get those antibodies, they'll go and stay dormant, and then should you get it again, your antibodies will come and kill it off within a matter of hours. Um, unless, of course, you're immunocompromised. Right, okay. So we're sort of pretty damn sure if you've had it, you won't get it. What about the two variants? Could you get the other variant? Um, I don't know the answer to that, David. Um, uh, What they are saying at the moment and what the evidence is suggesting is that if you get the other variant, your antibodies will still recognize it and still kill it off. Now, if the virus mutates, that's a completely different thing. And so what we see every year, the reason we have to have have a flu jab every year um, or the norovirus or something like that keeps on going around is because it mutates. You get a different version of it. When you get a different version of it, your previous immunity doesn't count. That's why you get seasonal flu. Um, And the biggest concern that a single biggest concern that I have around coronavirus is that it mutates and perhaps mutates into a more potent um, uh, uh, version of itself. And if that happens, I think we are going to have problems. Well, I think we have problems now. Let's 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 ask this then. So at the moment, the the test for the antigens is 70 percent accurate. Uh, For the antibodies, yes. Antibodies, sorry, the antibodies. Right. So we have a 70 (laughs) percent. So thirty percent of people that have been tested that think they're 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 immune or think they've had it won't have well that'll just if they go out for a walk they'll it'll all start again then surely. 
indeed, indeed. Mm. Um, and that's the problem with the antibody testing that's out there at the moment. But I think within a matter of weeks, probably weeks rather than months, we'll get a, something that's at a 95% accuracy level. Um, we use something called PCR, polymerase chain reaction, and that technique is advancing. There's actually a lot of really good research going on in a number of countries to make that test more accurate. It's just what we have in our hands at this current day. Okay. So let's just go to some practical tests. We don't know. We won't know when, to, when, when the vaccines come. We won't know when the, uh, when the, uh, 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 the antibody tests come, but they'll, everyone's working on it. What if somebody in your family has this right so i have an 84 year old mother who doesn't live with us and i've moved her so she's now near us most people don't have that luxury what if one of your relatives particularly someone vulnerable has this what would you do what can you do in a, in a, at a time where it's even difficult to drive around without going through police checkpoints what would you do so the very first thing is I'd, I'd want to be with them um, uh, and I'd want to be there to look after them. Now, in my position, I'm privileged because I'm a doctor and I've had COVID. So I feel that I'm immune and so that I don't pass the risk of passing on. But suppose it were one of my parents. Mm. I would want to be with them and I'd want to give them symptomatic support. So to try and deal with the issues as they arise, to try and make sure that their temperature is kept down, to try and make sure they're expectorating sputum and not getting a secondary pneumonia. Right here is getting a pneumonia and requiring ventilatory support. So number two is being able to identify the early signs of that. And the early signs are really to look out for um, people's general state of health as well as their respiratory condition. So if someone is starting to look unwell, becoming lethargic, conversation is dropping, mental state is dropping, especially in elderly individuals over the age of 70, mm -hmm. you need to start worrying a bit. If they're not responding to treatments, if their fever is keeping high, and then if you see that they're taking signs of respiratory distress, if they are taking more than 30 breaths per minute, if their pulse rate is going above 100 beats per minute, if they're showing signs that they're struggling to get breath in, which often means a tug on the trachea, mm -hmm. intercostal indrawing, which means that the muscles in between the ribs are, are, are push, pulling in and out. They're having to hold on to a table or a chair to try and get the breaths in. If they're flaring their nostrils, if they're gasping or wheezing, all of these things are signs of respiratory distress. And that's when you get them in a car and you get them to a hospital. Right. Okay. So at the moment, though, we have a problem. We're a disintermediated society. We're all over the world. There'll be there'll be people who who live in different countries, let alone different towns, or or or, or can't get because of uh, travel restrictions to the people they love. So how can we play the system? How can we utilize resources? How can we make things happen? So uh, first is you've got to use digital means. So at the moment, I'm not going anywhere near my parents, but I'm FaceTiming or video chatting with them at least twice or three times a day mm -hmm. so that I can see them and I can see how they're getting on. And so that if I do recognize that they're having problems, which they may not recognize, mm -hmm. then I can call local emergency services to go and help them. What would Ultimately, you say? Sorry, Snake, sorry to interrupt here. But what would you say if, if we know that... Um, Getting the attention, communication is everything here. Getting the attention of the emergency services requires probably keywords. What would be your advice? What would you say to the emergency services? How would you respiratory distress? Um, respiratory yeah. distress is is everyone is write that down. Word. Respiratory distress. <laughs> um, it's a real key key phrase because that's when you know um, medics pick up their ears because they know that it's coming to a point where they can do something to stop it from getting worse. Right. Um, but the problem here, David, is uh, 
it's horrible to admit it, but this is what's going to cause people to die, exactly what you just talked about. So what everyone fears and what the government quite rightly fears here is that we will get to a stage where our health service will not be able to provide the support services. So you may get a phone call for respiratory distress, but there aren't enough ambulances available. There aren't enough beds available in the hospital. There aren't enough ventilators available. And so rather than being able to do something about it, you will have to let it pass and you'll have to let that person die. And that's what's happened in Italy. And that's what's happened in Spain. The capacity of the system means that people who are getting it are not able to access the medical support that they need. And because of a provisioning problem, they will die. Whereas the um, Germans, for example, I mean, what, 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 what do you, how do you, what do you um, attribute the, uh, the lower rate of death in Germany to? I don't know what the answer to that is either, but I've got a theory. So um, I think it's all to do with viral load. Um, in Germany, there were no mass events that you can attribute um, to where coronavirus would have been spread. But there have been certain football matches in the north of Italy or in Spain mm -hmm. where people congregated at exactly the right time before um, the, the actual impact. Mm -hmm. And you can see those as zero events. That's when people got big viral loads and then started spreading it around. I think Germany was just lucky that it didn't have a mass public event like that. And that may explain what's going on, but it's only a theory. They have large numbers, but a far higher survival rate. I, I saw something like a 1% maximum uh, mortality rate in Germany, and I see a 9.5% mortality rate so far in Italy. Is that because of the age of the of the people getting it in, in Germany is because they have more ventilators, more emergency beds. I mean, in Germany, what's happening? We well, multifactorial. Um, the uh, There is a theory that in southern European societies, like the Italians and Spanish to a certain extent, there's much more communication with elderly relatives and much more cohabiting with elderly relatives. So one of the thoughts is that people are living with parents or contacting with parents on a regular basis and therefore spreading the virus and therefore higher death rates in parents, even though there's goodwill. Whereas in northern Europe, where there's more natural... Uh, social distancing between children and parents and not so much tactile behavior, that that has been one of the factors. Another has been about the viral load that I talked about and the zero events. And third, I think, is about medical system support as well. I mean, Germany has got a very good medical system, but I don't think it's been fully tested or, or strained like the Italians um, uh, uh, have had yet. But I think that's definitely going to be a factor as well, David. Okay. So I've seen, I've spoken to a lot of health professionals and a lot of economists, and uh, uh, they're talking about 18 to 24 months with repeat cycles, uh, three months on, three months off. Is that what you think is going to happen here? Yeah, I think I think so. I think there'll be an ebb and flow to it, but rather like we saw with Ebola or with SARS or with H or with with swine flu, um, you'll see that those cycles decrease and decrease over time, and actually rather than going away completely, because SARS hasn't gone away, MERS hasn't gone away, swine flu hasn't gone away, um, none of these things have gone away, they're still there, but society mm. learns how to deal with them and mm. learns how to progress. So let's take tuberculosis, for example, um, consumption. Tuberculosis, uh, back in the Middle Ages um, and in more recent times, um, was the COVID of, the, uh, of that time. Mm. Now, it's still the COVID of today. About 3,000% more people die of tuberculosis on a daily basis than they do of any viral infection. Um, but society has learned uh, to normalize deaths from TB. So it doesn't get reported and it doesn't get treated as an epidemic. Um, and it sort of normalizes society. And that's what our reaction is going to be. We're going to learn to live with this thing, but it's going to be around um, as a condition uh, for some time. Okay, so look, 
we've got 18 months, maybe 24 months coming and going until we all get vaccinated. And the world's going to be a very different place at the end of it. And the, my first question, as somebody who works in, in healthcare in many different ways, is if you get ill now, if you have cancer, if you have another secondary condition, such as a bacterial pneumonia, or, or a, is it safe to go to a hospital? Would you rather sit at home? <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Um, it's a good question. Um, so this is what's going to be the emerging pattern is that people are still going to get the diseases that they normally get. Um, and while COVID is around, people are avoiding seeking any sort of medical intervention. I mean, I can tell you from the health companies that I run around the world, all requests for elective medical intervention, whether that be hip replacements or cataract surgeries or whatever, have gone off completely. Nobody is going to hospital where they can help it. And one of the side effects of this is that people are going to ignore medical symptoms mm. um, for quite some time. And then we fear that there's going to be a massive rush presentation or there's going to be late presentations of things that have been diagnosed earlier, such as cancers. And, yeah. and the secondary effects are going to be quite bad as a result of that, David, yeah. Yeah. So I just wonder, you know, I think if you can't get an appointment, you know, because you have arthritis or you uh, aren't given steroids because that reduces your immune system or you can't. I mean, I presume the, 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 the MMR vaccines won't be people and just the healthcare is breaking down, breaking down, isn't it? At the moment, temporarily. Um, temporarily, uh, healthcare is seeing a very different thing. But I want to highlight one thing that's come to the fore. So um, people have been talking about digital health for quite a long time. Now, I understand digital banking. I can do most of my banking on an app. But when it comes to digital health, most people have been a bit bit reticent about this. What, you want me to see my doctor over a video consultation? Don't, doesn't, don't they need to see me physically? Don't they need to touch me? So I run this um, uh, this this organization called V Health, which works across the world. V Health is, is virtual health, and we do telemedicine consultations. Now, as people are staying away from doctors, this is becoming now mainstream. And about seventy to seventy-five percent of primary care can actually be done without you physically laying hands on a patient. I can tell you that as a doctor, it can be done by talking to you over a phone, over a video, and taking a really good medical history making sure you can safely get some blood results and blood tests of people and make a diagnosis and then give a prescription and a treatment plan. Can people, now, take, the, can people take their own uh, blood now, do you think? No, but what you, there's quite a lot of spot testing. Uh, so you do finger prick rather than doing um, cubital fossa blood. Uh, but we can still safely send phlebotomists around to your house to take blood mm. even in times of COVID. So um, this 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 V Health thing um, we we've got runs in India, it runs in Dubai, it runs in Thailand, it runs um, in a number of countries around the world, and we have seen demand for this go off the charts. People are coming to telemedicine, and they are now learning to interact with their doctors over video, over telephone, and still get diagnosis and treatment and prescriptions and the things that they need. And I think that era of digital medicine is just about to come into its own, stimulated by COVID, and that's how the healthcare system is beginning to learn to deal with one of the one of the side effects of this uh, this crisis. Well, that's 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 an optimistic note, and something I personally, uh, you know, am excited about. I mean, there's no way the health service. Well, the world's going to change. The world economy, people's commuting patterns. I mean, what can't you do on a telephone or or a video, con you know, consultation? At the moment. So, um, when it comes to the diagnostic element of things, you can do pretty much everything. Now. Mm -hmm. It's always nice for a doctor to lay hands on a patient and 
and and feel and listen and try and make a diagnosis. But if I'm honest with you, as a doctor, 75 to 80% of my diagnoses are made by looking at the patient and talking to them. Mm. That's what makes me understand what's wrong. I then do some investigations to help support the theories that I've made, my differential diagnosis. And as long as I can get those investigations done, now that requires physical contact. What you can't do, obviously, is then interventions, whether you need to do operations, whether you need to do scopes, whether you need to do um, uh, radiotherapies uh, or things that require people to be inpatients. You know, obviously, that's very limited. So the diagnostic side can be done by telemedicine. Some of the therapeutic side where you can give medicines to treat things, but where you need physical intervention, obviously, you're never going to get rid of that. And I, so we call that the fidgetal, it's not a very nice term, but the fidgetal environment, physical and digital put together. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, I imagine soon there'll be uh, iPhone-connected digital probes so you won't have to use your finger anymore, I'd imagine. <laughs> well, it's already beginning to come through. So um, uh, as part of what we do, we will ask patients, we will send them uh, a push notification which tells them how to take their pulse, how to take their respiratory rate, mm. um, how to dipsticks their own urine um, uh, and mm. use app um, to to see what that what that shows, um, whether, whether you've got nitrites or whatever, to mm. take your own blood pressure, um, to see your own capillary refill, to see um, uh, to use your your camera on your phone to give the doctor a very clear image of the back of your throat or whatever it may be, and mm. so there are lots of techniques now coming on, even if it's not devices, but we are um, certainly beginning to educate the world in how to do a proper teleconsultation. And I I, I presume as well this must be cheaper significantly cheaper um i can deliver a telemedicine consultation um uh, for about a fifth of the price of a normal bricks and mortar consultation and that's without the carbon footprint going wrong it's without people spending all the time one thing i've never been able to understand right if you are ill with a cough or a cold or anything or a fever why why do you have to go into a room full of you know unwell or vulnerable people and and infect each other? you know while you're waiting to see a, an equally infected gp it just seems archaic and hey presto david i think if there's something we're going to learn from covid it's going to be this you do not want to go in while you're infective and infect the, the old traditional model of sitting in the gp surgery with a with a hacking cough for two hours waiting to see the gp infecting everybody else there right. and the gp those days are, are gone and i'm hoping that we'll learn our lesson from covid that mm-hmm. um you know just stuff about social distancing and hand washing and how to stop infecting other people. This is this is going to become the new norm, if nothing else. Social um, distancing, uh, though, is a little depressing, isn't it? I mean, you know, okay, Donald Trump, I believe, I could be wrong, didn't used to like shaking hands anyway, and maybe that's super smart. But if you go to the loo, if you go to the lavatory in, in a restaurant, right, you wash your hands, you dry them, and then you put your hand on a doorknob and it's got somebody else's feces on it, it's not helpful. There's a lot of changes in, in society that are going to have to be at a granular level, hopefully, that will come out of this. Well, David, let me ask you about this because I'm sceptical. I'm sceptical about human behaviour. Mm-hmm. I think we'll get over this, and in three years' time, our uh, population memory of what to do um, will have dissipated to a large extent some things may have changed but we'll start getting busy again we'll start flying around the world we'll start producing polluting factories we'll start um uh uh uh, doing the uh, having the same lavatory routine that you just described this is my natural skepticism um i don't know what your viewpoint is on this well i don't know i didn't expect this virus i didn't expect brexit i didn't expect a lot of things i didn't expect to go bald i don't predict the future i'm reacting to the present and trying to just adjust the future a little bit at a time but let's go about a healthcare for a bit right 
So we've got Matt. We're, we're going to we're going to try and move this a bit you know, optimistically forward. We're seeing some fantastic innovations, even if we're we're having a little grammatical pause uh, as as we as we try to survive. Um, what else are we going to see? That's really every bad event, whether it's the Second World War or the First World War, has led to innovation. What are we really going to see other than just telehealth from this? What do you think? optimistically it's going to happen or do you think we're just going to just regress so many people would have now seen the 2015 ted talk by uh, bill gates um uh where he predicted um that one of the biggest issues we're going to have is pandemic and this is going to be uh, an ever increasing issue uh this is not the only pandemic the world's going to have we're going to have cyclical pandemics and one thing that i do think we'll learn is to heed that warning sign much better and to strengthen our public health systems. So if you listen to that TED talk, you'll see that he's actually got some very, very workable solutions. And I think government and private investment in medical infrastructure and public health infrastructure around the world to be able to deal with these sorts of things in a much better way is definitely going to be one of the positive outcomes that we get from, from this. Um, at least I hope uh, that that will be the result. Um, I have faith that that will be one of the results that comes out. Mm. And do you think the genetic data, we're moving into an era of, of the ability to edit our genes and to, and, to, and to have personalized medicine. I want to be able to talk to you about that as well. Presumably, we're getting a lot of genetic data from this. Um, so, no, not really. So we're, we're looking at the genome of the virus itself, uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we're looking at the genomes of the people or indeed how people with different genetic makeups have responded to this. I think that will be a secondary use of the data. And as we do our you know, uh, post-apocalyptic analysis that I'll refer to, um, we'll start looking at how genes affect it. But uh, we're only just beginning that that science, David. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, not part of the normal medical parlance right now. Don't you think they ought to be collecting the genetics, the genomes of everyone that's been affected? So I think, um, generically speaking, um, we're moving into a, a, a world that needs to know the genetic data of every individual. Because when we know the genetic data of every individual, not only on a population level, but on an individual level, we can tailor treatments and we can understand what's going to happen. So we'll know that Mr. Y over here versus Mr. X over there is going to get coronavirus, COVID disease much worse um, than, than the other gentleman. And therefore, we need to isolate that person in advance. We need to get their medical support and we can you know, really marshal our resources to deal with the right people. And at a population level, we'll understand a lot more about how disease interacts with us and therefore what are the treatment modalities. So yes, we are going to very fast move into the code where if you've got an individual IP address uh, today, why don't you have your individual genetic code? Um, mm. That's coming down the track and you know, some people are going to accelerate that conversation. Mm. Could you see any kind of uh, uh, gene editing here that would help uh, adjust the immune system once we've recognized, once we've decoded? Not, not now, but maybe in five or 10 years' time. Would you see, or 20 years' time? Would you see that? You ask, um, you ask the crucial question here. So, would we be able to um, produce essentially a vaccine um, which you can give to people through a nasal spray, um, which would go into their system and would essentially alter their genetic material? Um, so that they are resistant to coronavirus. Um, yes, that day will come. I don't think it'll happen in my lifetime, 
um, but I think genetic modification and modulation is probably going to be the answer to the vast majority of medical conditions, not just coronavirus. How do you stop multiple sclerosis? How do you stop certain cancers from forming? Um, can you modify people's genetic makeup um, to prevent diseases from coming on? And I think that's going to be the future of medicine. David. So my hope, and I want to ask you whether you think this is reasonable, if we were gathering the 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 genetic information from those people who have survived, those who've got moderate symptoms, those who have been unlucky enough to, to die uh, outside their expected age group or without pre-existing conditions. If we're able to do that and we're able to map it across the, the uh, underlying genetic code of the virus and, it, and its, and its uh, um, mutated forms, which it will do eventually, surely that data put through the right AI, AI, AI mechanisms would start to predict algorithms that that one predict those who would suffer most from it, but also with gene editing software like CRISPR now, would begin to be able to model individualized ways of changing via stem cells or by T cells, the the um, producing almost a human antivirus. I mean, do you not think that this is a potentially a catalyst for this? Well, see, David, I can see why you're a scientist, um, because what you say is a very ask is a very informed question, um, and you have the answer right there. Yes, that's the way of the future. But and there are two big um, buts in this. One is um, at the moment, what are we trying to do? We're trying to get people onto ventilators. We can't get enough ventilators to support people who are dying, and we know that it's going to make a difference. So we're in this sort of um, structural, uh, environmental, economic situation around the world where those who are lucky enough to be in metropolitan areas uh, will probably survive this thing because they'll get enough medical support and those in rural, low-income areas will die of it because they won't get the necessarily medical support. So there's that. The second is, of course, the ethical issues um, associated with any sort of gene modification and gene editing. Um, because if we start playing God and changing our genetic material, then we could potentially, theoretically, get rid of every cause of death. We could all live forever. But is that actually what the world wants? Um, and is that the right, right way to run society? And so the ethical debates around it are probably going to be the biggest hinder, hindrance to the catalyst that is science on this. Hmm. And the interaction between science and economics and public health and, and, and uh, uh, political systems um, are really holding things back here but surely this is a time now to step back and go wow this changes everything and we look here at potentially the British economy for example losing 20% overnight we look at 3 million people in the states who've registered this week for unemployment surely everything has changed and the one thing we learn surely is we already have an underfunded public health system everywhere in every country in the world don't we How's it going to be able to, how we, on the basis we're going to come out of this with trillions of debt, how are we going to fund anything from a world that's 30% poorer? How? Surely we've got to show things. Yeah, well, two reactions. Um, one is for people who are losing their livelihoods and uh, their small businesses and who don't have an income and are worried about making the next meal for their family, um, there is no quick answer. I mean, it's, it's disastrous. Um, and 
uh, we're going to have to pick our way through this carefully. I do, I must admit that I've been very impressed with the fiscal responses that have come from developed economies. They've been strong and they've been hard. The UK, the US um, have come up with fiscal policies which will support us through this. And I think those strong measures are very, very laudable. On the other side of, of the coin is I have hope. Mm. I have hope that this means that we won't measure our success as society by the fact that we grow 3% every year or 30% in 10 years, uh, that we will measure ourselves on sustainability, on access to health, on, um, uh, on egality, um, uh, on, on poor and rich, both having a chance of surviving horrible conditions, and that this will refocus society's metrics for success from GDP growth to sustainability and access to health healthcare systems. How old are your kids? The two and the three. Right. Now, the world's changed. The economy's changed. Let's say they were, I don't know, 10. What, are they, what career would you, would you want them to go into now? Well, <laughs> I um, always thought to myself, I didn't want them to become doctors. And I, up until this, this episode, um, I would have advised them not to be. But I stood outside my door clapping the NHS at 8 p.m. last night. Mm. And I saw the reaction. Uh, and you know what? what's really brought warmth to my heart is that society has, if it's only temporary, it may be, but has recognized that the people who we should be praising and compensating are those who cure us, those who educate us, those who look after our infrastructure, those who make sure we can get food onto our table and provision us, and not the people who move money around financial systems um, as being the cream of the crop. And I think that realization that's coming through in society is something that's really heartwarming. So what does that mean for my children? I'm not going to encourage them to be investment bankers um, so that they can have a very big house in central London. I'm going to encourage them to do to pursue professions that will help society and that will help the sustainability of the human race. Um, and so my viewpoint has changed 180 degrees as a result of this COVID crisis. In, in, in three weeks, it's quite something. So your, 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 your job means you have a lot of international feedback and you have responsibility for, um, which countries are you operating in professionally? Korea, uh, China, India, Dubai, Thailand, and America. And what have you seen in those countries that, are, that you've disliked and liked? So I'll tell you what I've liked. Um, the word on the ground from China and Korea, and I speak to them every day, is that things are getting better. So this normalization of society that I talked about, people are venturing out onto the streets. They're saying hello to friends again. Um, they're beginning to come back. And as the virus numbers decrease in Korea and China, um, people are returning to a more normalized, socialized society. Um, the negativity is that the rebound is not going to be a V-shaped rebound. Is going to be a u-shaped rebound so rather than the linear decrease and then the linear increase we're going to have a linear decrease and then a plateau of normal behavior before suddenly we get the rebound effect and we're beginning to see that rebound now coming through in asia what um, about a w snow what about i mean if the if it comes back it's going to dip it it's not going to be smooth is it this um, yeah, it's you're probably right. It's probably more of a W or a series of Ws than it is a series of Us. Um, there are going to be spikes and, uh, and oscillations um, around it. India, uh, 1.3 billion people uh, in shutdown, in lockdown. Mm. I don't think you and I have got the first understanding of what that means to the vast majority of Indian 
How is that actually working? Can people leave their house at all? How do they get well, food? Yeah. Um, so I think you know, society always finds a way of, of, of getting through things. And I think in local village, rural economies, they're going to be supporting each other a little bit more, how you can police it. I have seen the big metros have really shut down. There's lots of photographs of Mumbai and Delhi having shut down. But for the people who are under the breadline, who are not, not going to be getting any sort of daily income, they are going to starve and they are going to die. Um, and the press is not reporting this. The press is reporting the few thousand people who are going to get coronavirus in India. But I think that, you know, that is just an undertaking that uh, none of us can really imagine, really understand. And so I fear for India um, in particular. And in the US, unfortunately, and I've got to say this, I think um, the blase attitude of the federal administration uh, in early days is now causing a significant problem. And uh, the US has emerged as a as the global epicenter and i'm afraid that trend is going to continue for the next two to three months and it's so let's just think about this if the economy is stopped presumably the next stage of this is that once you can prove you have immunity you can wander about um uh, and partake in an active life or can you because i ask i want to ask you the question the, the, in order to restart, we need people like you that have been proven and have a little you know, red light flashing around, a little green light, a big hat with I'm immune. Um, the question is, if you then go and visit, I don't know, someone who's either ill or, or, or carrying the virus and you touch surfaces, surely we're going to end up with an apartheid society, aren't we? I mean, you're going to infect people, aren't you? If you're walking about with a, with a, a tie or a, or a, or a you know, jacket, which is, which is uh, or, or you're moving hard services about. Yeah, I don't think we'll ever get to that level of testing where everybody who is immune will be tested to be immune. Um, and I think without medical intervention, medical testing, we'll move to a normalized society. I don't think we'll move to an apartheid society if you've had it and I haven't. Once you reach 60% um, uh, immunity uh, in a population, you get herd immunity. You'd have seen the front page of the Financial Times a couple mm -hmm. of days ago that uh, there was a study that came out of Oxford suggesting that more than half the population have already experienced it. I think there are lots of people out there, David, who probably had coronavirus and been relatively asymptomatic. Um, and I think actually a lot more of the UK population has probably been exposed to it than we realize already and so my hope my faith my belief here is that the next few weeks and the next few months are going to be torrid but thereafter we will normalize and we'll go back to some normal pattern of being and existing albeit with this in the background with oscillating spike, spikes of the disease okay so that's an optimistic note and and <laughs> i'm sorry to drag things back sideways are we going to have more pandemics or an acceleration in the amount of pandemics I don't know about accelerations, but we're certainly going to have more pandemics. Um, but uh, we're getting better with pandemics. So uh, you'll know the stats, but from 1917, 1918, the, um, the Spanish flu, the pandemic that hit, killed 33 million people around the world. Mm. Why did it get so bad? Because of World War One, everyone was distracted. Um, everyone was carrying stuff around to different global economies. 33 mm. million people died. How many people will die of COVID around the world? Less than 3 million, I should imagine. Um, uh, or certainly less than 10 million. Um, so it's going to be at least a, a, you know, a third of the impact. Um, and with every uh, pandemic that comes and hits us, we will have better responses and we'll learn how to deal with it better. But biology class, you remember the agar plate um, and um, you see the population of, uh, 
uh, uh, uh, microorganisms that live on the agar plate, they get to a plateau. And I don't want to sound fatalistic uh, or like some weird um, uh, uh, theorist, but there is no doubt in my mind that the earth can only sustain a certain uh, number of people on it. Uh, and I think we're fast approaching that. And I think we'll get, we, if there's going to be acceleration of pandemics, it will be in response to massive over overpopulation of the globe. Dark stuff, dark stuff, and and uh, not made. I mean, um, any easier if you if you uh, believe that with the uh, um, development of science uh, of longevity and being able to edit our telomeres and all kinds of things that are coming up next. It's uh, it's um, we 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 face a massively changing society. So now you're predicting uh, the beginnings of recovery after three months with some ups and downs, which sounds great. Um, uh, personally, I'm concerned about this uh, this kind of apartheid, this immunity apartheid, um, a bit like herpes dating sites were in the 80s. Uh, uh, and, and I think that'll take time. And I also think that, um, well, well, if I had to ask you this, um, do you feel that you're going to be two meters away from most people for the foreseeable future, maybe a decade? Uh, no, I don't see that at all. I see that disappearing by uh, the late summer. Um, as human beings, we need each other. Humanity is the overriding factor beyond all other considerations. And social interaction, social intimacy, um, all of those things are very important for people, uh, for human beings. And uh, they will become the overriding factor in human behavior rather than um, a need to socially distance. We may change from handshaking to fist bumping or elbow clashing instead um, uh, as what may be the norm. Um, th 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 things like that may change, but no, I don't see myself socially distancing from people for a sustained period of, amount, uh, period of time. What kind of um, opportunities will there be for inventors and health entrepreneurs and, 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 and people who want to, to contribute to a, uh, an advanced future here, a more optimistic future in healthcare? What would you love well, to say? So the, the opportunity is great. Two, two, two things that I'd say on that. One is what I've been really amazed about is the wartime response that we've seen. So suddenly um, factories that produce um, uh, bedding linen are producing uh, face masks. Um, uh, Dyson is no longer producing hand dryers. He's producing ventilators. Um, and, and the fact that we can rejig our industries in a very short space of time to respond to a crisis and to build equipment um, and to retool to, and retrain um, to with that. I think that's innovation itself. I think that's really exciting to see how quickly we can change to, to meet the demand um, and how quickly we've come up with um, uh, DIY home fix it ventilators, for example. It's been really amazing. I've been really overwhelmed by that. And yes, for, for, for entrepreneurs and for people who are really inventing in the, in the medical space, things like this, um, you know, who, who, the private equity companies, what are they going to invest in uh, once they start investing again? They're going to be investing in people who can come up with innovative medical treatments, people who can deal with epidemics, um, people who've got uh, great genetic um, uh, under, understanding of populations. That's where the money's going to go after this. Um, and so I see hope because there's going to be money flow and therefore innovation and better technology coming out as a result. And what was your first business? You were a medical entrepreneur at the same time as being an oncological surgeon, weren't you? 
Yes, I was. Well, I set up a small company. We had a, we had a bit of a nightmare. So working in the NHS, um, I used to see 60 patients in the clinic and I used to dictate my notes on a very small um, dictaphone with a small tape. And I would put that tape on top of the notes and I'd send it over to our medical secretaries who'd then try and type it up. But often the tape got spoiled or, or it got lost. And so suddenly 60 patients didn't have the letters and the investigations that they needed. So I said, well, let's do a digital dictation um, uh, solution. So I set that up and, uh, and that was uh, a success because it met a need. Um, so, yeah, that's what I started off uh, my business life in. Mm. And, and, you, and you, you've been a successful entrepreneur. You're, you're a medical visionary. Right, Sine, we have a, a list of uh, questions from some of our Adorium members. Uh, uh, we have a, a, an Adorium partner uh, called Andy, or known as Welsh Andy, to those of us that have met him. And he's... Um, uh, said, uh, you know, that do you think your experience here uh, as an international entrepreneur in healthcare that um, this is the time that we should be concentrating on more locally independent supply chains, not just within healthcare? Do you feel that this is a way that this is a time for less globalization, more localization? How would you deal with this? So great question, Andy, and you, you know how much I love Andy. That's why I'm going um, <laughs> to tell, tell me it's a great, it is a great question. Um, yes is the answer, Andy. Um, I think what doctors all know and what health system all, systems all know is that healthcare is very local. So you may have international guidelines and international policies and blah, 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 but it's all about the local provisioning. It's about looking after your nan at the end of the street. It's about the community that you live and operate in. It's about the provisioning of services within that community. And yes, absolutely, it's about local supply chains, um, especially as borders shut down. You're not going to be able to import lots of tests over from uh, France into Germany at the moment or from India into the UK. Uh, you're going to have to do it locally. And that goes right down to you know a, a country, but also probably a county and even a town level. And local supply chains and local re-engineering is exactly the way to go. And I think this will teach us a lesson about globalization. When you can't cross borders, how do you cope? How do you make sure you've got enough food, enough medicines, enough supplies um, in a non-global agenda? And I think that's going to be a reversal that we see as a result of this. So you're not yeah. arguing for more globalization. You're not arguing for less boundaries and less borders. You believe we should I, they are? Yeah, I, 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 I think the globalization agenda perhaps had gone a little bit too far. Now I'm stretching well out of my realm of, of medical expertise here. And this is more of a, a sort of uh, uh, macro political and economic view. But I think the convenience and ease with which we can jump onto a polluting jet and stream halfway across the world for a couple of days and then come back is not right. It's not right for society. and It's not right for how we should live our lives. Um, we are creatures defined by our um, surroundings and by our envi local environment and that local environment is increasingly important and I think we're beginning to realize that actually we don't need to be fully global actually being local um, is a much better way of being and of existing with the earth um, and I hope that's one of the things that, that comes out of this I don't know what you think David I'm, I'm interested in your view here I, I, I don't know I think there's going to be a lot of uh, 3d printing uh, which means everything from from, from clothes to, to personal devices will be made at the end of your street. I think that's going to change the way we commute. I don't think the, the hour and a half of commuting a day that many of us have, uh, which adds up to, to years and years and years over a lifetime, I don't think that's, that's very good. So I think there'll be a lot of changes, both because of the pollution, because of the economy and because of technology. But um, I, I, I don't know. 
my natural inclination is uh, is to to get rid of borders because I think we live in a global world, but clearly we don't. So it's 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 up for debate. We have a, we have a we have another question um, here um, from a rather stressed parent. How on earth, with a two and three year old, do you keep your kids entertained and sane? Uh, that's a that is a tough one. So. Um... Actually, what I found just on a very human level is I'm spending more time with my children mm. rather than rushing around. I can you give them any drugs? <laughs> no, none at all. But good, uh, good food, good uh, nutrition, uh, and exercise. So um, my my daily exercise is now taking them out and uh, kicking a football around with them in the park or something like that uh, while maintaining a distance from other people. And I think that's perfectly acceptable to do because if you have young children cooped up at home. So for everybody who's out there, who's a parent, whose children are not going to go to school probably until September, this is going to be one of the most challenging periods of your life. And uh, a few tips that I would give give to you is one, use it as an opportunity to change the nature of your relationship with your children from a transactional to a, to an essential one. And what I mean by that is rather than just rushing around, giving them breakfast, getting them ready, getting them to school, getting them back from school, doing their homework, getting to bed, you've now got time with your children to invest in them, for them to get to know you, for you to just be with them without the hectic daily schedule. And you know what? You will never get this opportunity again so enjoy it and really you know get together with your family understand them be with them it's a unique opportunity and we should take advantage of it mm. and do you i mean i know your kids are young but would you be homeschooling them now or just let them be if they're a bit um old? so the two-year-old will, will will protest desperately if i were to try and give him any educational material mm -hmm. but our three-year-old allegra who is very clever um is being homeschooled um, and it's it's quite entertaining um, uh, trying to educate uh, a young child. I don't know if you've tried it recently, but it certainly challenges you intellectually uh, when suddenly you've got to think about the concepts of learning and how children take in information. That's been quite an interesting uh, learning experience for me. And presumably kids are going to learn a lot more about their parents and what their parents know and don't know. And, and it's, it's, it's going to change a lot of things. Uh, I mean, it's very exciting and, and I'm taking it. Um, an opportunity to learn lots of things here. I'm, I'm very excited, but we'll talk about it in a second. We have a, another question. Um, at a time where you can't get your meds, where where you might not be able to get, you, get your, your your meds, whether you are uh, you um, uh, have a regular uh, chronic condition or whether you have mental illness, we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, how do you get the attention of the health service and of the prescribing doctors and pharmacists, and what can we do to change that in this in this crisis? Let me just talk about the UK, um, which I've been particularly impressed by. So um, uh, we've actually taken a very responsible approach to supply chain management. And while that sounds like a dry term, it's an uber important term, whether it's about getting bread onto your kitchen table or getting your propanolol for your um, uh, hypertension, um, supply chain management through crisis is so important. You've got to be able to get the stuff to people that they need. But how do you get it if... I know already from trying to help other people, pharmacies are, are, are having some shortages. I mean, how do you get the attention of, if you, we've already spoken earlier on about the trouble that people have or, or what we have to do to get the attention of the emergency services if you're worried about a loved one. If one is faced with a, a non-renewing prescription or you can't get to a surgery or you can't, I mean, how do we work the system? How do we, what can we do uh, in a world of a, we have high-speed internet, 
but people can't prescribe electronically. So what can we do to break through? How can we, if people are worried about getting prescriptions or need new new drugs or something like that? So in this country already, about 93% of GPs have moved to telephone-based uh, consultations, and about 98% of our GPs are on an electronic medical system, often EMIS, which allows e-prescriptions and will allow your local pharmacy to fulfill that prescription for you. Um, and so in the UK, certainly, uh, that supply chain is working well. We currently do not have any shortage of drugs um, that may develop. I don't know over time, but right now we have plentiful supply, especially in large metropolitan areas. Um, and so e-prescriptions, um, uh, virtual consultations with your GP and uh, supply chain management to get drugs into, into pharmacies is working in this country, David. Hmm. That is excellent news. And let's hope it wherever anyone watching this uh, is living, that that's the same thing. So do not be scared to ring your local GP. Is that right? Exactly. Ring, contact, email, shout, and 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 uh, pharmacies also can deliver. So that's great news. That's one thing. And, we, and and to hear there's no real supply chain issues for for critical medications. That's wonderful too. Yeah. Now moving on to a, a related subject, and we've got emails on it, and we've got questions, and that is really the state of our minds. We could be on and off like this, certainly for three or four months, but it may be eighteen months. It could be anything. This is a difficult time. There's anxiety and there's isolation. Uh, some people are on their own. Some people are in a family having, um, you know, it's like one great psychotic Christmas for some people. And other people, it's incredibly lonely out there. Well, how have you kept yourself sane? So um, a few uh, hints that I would be able to offer um, you and people who are listening and watching. Uh, Creatures of habit. Human beings are creatures of habit. And when you're in self-isolation, and this is not when you're unwell with COVID, it's just if you're leading a normal life, but quarantined mm -hmm. for the good of society, mm -hmm. is try and maintain a routine. Very important to try and get to bed on a regular time, get up at a regular time like a normal routine. Make sure you get out of your pajamas and into your, into your day clothes and you have a shower. Make sure you have your meal times regularly. Make sure you aliquot your day into defined activities rather than let it all merge into one. If you're working from home, uber important to have a start and end to your working day and to be able to switch off from that, ideally from a different room into another one. Make sure you have good sleep conditions. And by that, I mean a degree, a room that's at 20 degrees C, um, ideally uh, minimal light um, intervention. You're going to sleep at a regular time, getting up at a regular time, not having caffeinated products within six hours of going to bed. Um, all of those sorts of things. Um, getting out for your regular exercise. Um, Boris has said we can do it. We should do it. We should be getting out for at least 30 minutes, ideally an hour of exercise, which leaves you slightly out of breath every day. Keeping those things going. That's what's going to keep your mental health um, uh, stable and your anxiety levels down during this uh, this crisis time. Okay, so the, the, some of the things are are that are worrying people that are going to change the way we live. In number one is loneliness. Any tips for that? It's a tough one. Um, there are probably five or six older individuals on the street that I live on that live independently and by themselves. Mm -hmm. um, the community support that I've seen. Um, which are WhatsApp groups, uh, which help to deliver fun things to their door, foods, um, or just text-based conversations or, or, or video conversations. Really, really important. Um, don't think about you with your busy family or me with my busy family, where I'm perfectly fine. It's Jerry who lives across the street, street who's 82 and is by himself and his remote control is not working for his TV. Getting him a remote control and uh, just uh, giving him a, a wave through the window every day makes a, a fundamental difference. 
Okay, but if you're one of the people that are feeling lonely, what would you do? Any advice? It's tough. It's tough, it isn't is it? Tough, isn't it? Um, it, it is tough. There's, there's no simple uh, panacea solution to this. One of the biggest problems that we've got in our elderly community in the UK is loneliness. Mm. Uh, various charities have highlighted it. I think the COVID crisis will highlight it even more. Social isolation is one of the most difficult things for human beings to cope with. And it's probably a cause of death that we don't recognize on medical certificates. Um, so hopefully we'll learn from this and understand how as a community to support those who are socially isolated. Okay, but a lot of people are socially isolated and they have to be and they're living on their own huge millions and millions and millions of people so some of the obvious things are you've given you've given some you know great list you've given sleep hygiene you've given meaning and if anybody um wants to 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 read something that's inspiring then uh, victor frankel's uh, uh, um work uh, is it's absolutely fantastic he he um has a, wrote a book which i recommend to all of you uh, man's search for meaning uh, he was in Auschwitz and somehow managed to achieve a great degree of positivity, even putting on stand-up uh, uh, comedy nights. And his uh, uh, experience was that those who had meaning during this time, who could Im impose their own meaning on their life, they, f they, they, they flourished. And, and I think that's very, very important. Now, that's easier said than done. But um, if you have structure and you're doing all the things that Snay tells you, that's wonderful. But I, I would ask you this. Um, there's also a great opportunity here. Life's on pause. And um, what, I mean, what have you learned, not just about yourself, but let's talk about, have you, have you found any inspiring moments here since you've been, particularly in, 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 your, in, your, in your isolation from the virus? Have you, have you discovered anything fantastic? Have you used it as an opportunity to learn? Um, yeah, so I, th th there are a few things which jump um, straight out. One of which we we did talk, we talked about a little bit earlier, which is um, who are the important people or the important roles in society. I really feel like I've had an epiphany moment about that, um, and I think a lot of people will probably feel the same way that uh, suddenly society is beginning to recognise um, those that are really important, and hopefully compensation trend trends will change to support that as well. We do not pay our teachers and our infrastructure workers and our policemen and our doctors mm -hmm. enough money. I'm not just saying that because I'm a doctor. Um, um, and, and the way that society is tilted to compensate those um, uh, who, who perform non-essential functions, I, I think that is wrong. So hopefully we'll see some reset on that. And personally, I'm seeing a reset. One. Two is I've been amazed by community. I continue to be amazed by human behavior and mm. human responsiveness to this. Um, how the community, how many people came out to clap for the NHS uh, last night. I was just astounded. I thought people would you know, scurry into their... Um, normal um, holes and, and, and not do anything about it but everyone's out there celebrating and there is a real sense of community and it's palpable even if you can't see people you're feeling that in, in, in society I'd say that's that's the second thing and the third thing is um, is that I think governments are actually pretty good at dealing with crisis situation I think um, you know I, I would I would applaud the UK government and how it's handled the situation um, I would suggest that there are other governments which have uh, done similar responses, and I've been very impressed by that. And so I've resurged my faith in, in in government and and how the world can come together to deal with the crisis. Well, that's an optimistic global global position. I'm sure we're going to come out of this stronger. I believe that that uh, there's a period of reflection. We've all got time now to learn to connect with each other. Here's some things that I would that I've been doing that's making me feel better. I don't know if that's. Uh, um, I found I've 
I like to make six or seven phone calls a day or, or, or video chats to people. I'm meeting and spending time in a less hurried way with the people I love or that I've forgotten. I'm catching up and I'm learning more. I've got lists of um, fun things I forgot I wanted to do, and I put them on Post-it notes, and suddenly I've got the time. I'm improving my cooking. I'm tasting things. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to listen more. I'm trying to change something new that I do every day. And I've decided to take another degree in something that I haven't decided what, because you can. It's just, we live in a connected world. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And I think that um, if you do at least five or 10,000 steps a day, if you have an Apple Watch or, or an iPhone or a pedometer, that's good, isn't it? And, and I think that mainly isolation um, naturally depresses people and there's no need. There's two and a half billion of us with high-speed internet connections. We should be talking to each other. So get yourself Zoom, get yourself into house party, get yourself into apps, talk to people, go across, go across, you know, uh, generations. Go back and watch old stuff. Try and understand what the new, what the new culture is. Make something. Write a diary every day. Write something. This is, this is for me. This is horrible and amazingly marvelous as an opportunity to create a better you and to and to re-engage. With, with, with the changing world. So it, 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 I would say if you're feeling uh, depressed or anxious, um, be optimistic about your own journey in this. And the other, and the other things now, I, I don't know how you feel about this, but I would also say only watch the bloody news for 15 minutes a day and turn it off. Put on some music, dance about the house, just stop it. Preferably not wearing your trousers because that lets the air into your legs. You know, is, is, that, a, is that a medical uh, phenomenon? <laughs> Uh, just, just for you, David. Yes, that is a medical phenomenon. There we are. <laughs> agree with you. Agree with you entirely. Wise words, David. Wise words. But one of the things we have at Adorium is that we believe that people matter more than anything else, and that when you look someone in the eye, and you can now do that on the internet, you can do that in real life. You can do it. You look, at it and suddenly you realise, ah, hang on a minute, I can empathise. These are my friends, and guess what? Whether you're worried about making money or with being lonely or whatever it is, or solving a problem or, or, or talking to a doctor, these are people. We're all people. We need to look into each other's eyes, uh, particularly now, hear each other's voice, see each other's uh, uh, perspectives. And you know what? If this makes us do this, this weird distancing makes us value other people more. This is this is magnificent. And, and, and at Adorum, we, we, we love to bring people together to create friendships and understanding. And then business just happens. And... All business is just people, suppliers and workers and, and audiences. And, and that's why we're so honored to have Snay as, as uh, one of our partners and advisors. And, and Snay, you've saved millions of people's lives. You've been very modest today. Um, but I suspect, knowing you as I do, that something is going to emerge because of you uh, from this crisis. And, and I'm really excited to see you, uh, see what you do next. Thank you so much, Dr. Snay Kempka, for, for, enriching us today thank you david Welcome thank you for having me appreciate it thank you thank you everybody stay well <laughs>